We had a session in 2018 where the whole of the SASA board, you were unfortunately not able to make it, but we were all sitting um, and sort of answering questions. And it became so heated. It was wonderful. It was really, it was really well attended. And the interesting thing for me, one of the takeaways from that discussion, because it was mostly producers and mine industry there, and the, the takeaway point was everybody thinks that someone else is responsible or some other part of the industry is responsible for improving restaurant standards. Hello, and welcome to the XNMO Wine Co. podcast. I'm David Clark. The purpose of this podcast is to document the stories in South African wine. We are interested in how we got to where we are today and where we're going tomorrow. Thank you very much for joining us. Xanimo Wine Co. is a wine distributor based in Cape Town. Please go to our website, xanimo.co.za, for more on what we do. Or should I say what we normally do? The ANC government, led by President Ramaphosa, has in their wisdom decided to reinstate the ban on the sale and movement of wine. Exports are still allowed. This will have, and is already having, a hugely negative impact on the wine and hospitality sectors in South Africa. These industries are very near and dear to my heart and have been my sole source of income for two decades. These measures will last at least until the 15th of August. Expectations locally are that it will continue until mid to late September. We cannot sell wine at the moment, so if you find this podcast valuable or would you like you would like to support us in some way, please consider buying an Xenomo wine trucker cap, pictures of which can be found on our Instagram page. They are 300 rand each, including delivery to anywhere within South Africa. The order form is at our website. Today on the podcast, we have Higo Jacobs. Higo has been a key figure in the South African wine industry for a decade. A certified sommelier, he was part of the founding board of the South African Sommelier Association, SASA. He was also the chairperson for SASA for four years, standing down in early 2019. Higo no longer works as a sommelier and has been a consultant for hire to the industry for a decade. In that time, he has done work for various restaurants, WOZA, the export lobby group of the South African wine industry, the Niederberg Auction, numerous international publications and journalists. He is also one of South Africa's representative palettes at the Decanter World Wine Awards. If you've ever been to South Africa on an official wine business, you've probably met Higo. Most recently, he's been instrumental, along with Roland Peens of Wine Cellar, in trying to create a formal secondary market for wine in South Africa. They've been working with auction house Strauss & Co, who specialise in art, to achieve this. A week or two prior to our chat, the live auction held on the Strauss & Co website yielded some amazing results, with six bottles of the Kellencott Paul Sauer 2015 vintage selling for just over 5,000 rand a bottle. The retail price on the release back in 2018 of that wine was 375 rand per bottle. I wanted to chat to Higo about his time at Sasa and his opinion on what next for the sommelier profession in South Africa and the recent auction result and to find out a bit more about it in the mechanics of how those auctions are put together. During the podcast, you'll notice that Higo calls me Davey and he is the only person outside my immediately family to do so. I'm not sure why. Higo and I are friends. We served for six years on the board of Sasa together and have a lot of respect for each other. It was always great chatting to him. This was recorded in late May 2020 when we were still under hard lockdown, so I had to rely on our good friend Zoom. Unfortunately, it kept cutting out and we had to re-record some sections more than once. This, combined with some pretty average interviewing ability from yours truly, resulted in raw recording that jumped around a lot. I apologise. I've done the best I can to edit it and make it play as it, as it would have occurred had the technology and skills been up to the standard. 
as with all of these home recordings, there is some background noise. If you concentrate, you can hear Higo's young daughter, Sadi, in some parts. Even though there were some challenges in this episode, I believe it is well worth listening to. Higo is a unique voice in the South African wine industry and brings fresh insights to many parts of it. I give you Higo Jacobs. I'm here with Higo Jacobs. How are you, man? I'm very well. Thanks, Davey. Nice to, nice to chat. Yeah, I haven't likewise, heard your voice man. in too long. I know. You must be, uh, you must be thrilled. <laughs> no comment. Um, mate, for those who don't know you, perhaps just um, run us through uh, your life in wine up until this point. Oh, wow. Okay. I'll, uh, I'll you can be quicker, try and summarize you can be quicker or, or, or slow. I mean, if you want to give us minutiae in detail, that's fine. No, well, from from memory, uh, from sketchy memory, uh, a summary would be: I was born in wine country, uh, but um, not the traditional Boerland wine areas. I was born in the Little Karoo, so I grew up with uh, very good ports and fortified wines around me. Uh, so, for pocket money, always at school, I was uh, working weekends and holidays, and even sometimes uh, seasonal work at wineries in in Karlsdorf. And then uh, straight after school, didn't know what to study, didn't really have uh, the finances of, uh, together and um, just decided to go and work at a winery. And I worked at uh, Hosnell Wine Estate that just set up at the time, or just uh, formed at the time under the Russian ownership. Uh, worked there for two years. And I, I started, uh, it was going to be a, a holiday job in the in the tasting room, but then I got so interested in what happened behind the scenes in the in the cellar that Renel Witt, at the time, the winemaker there, offered me a cellar hand job. Two of the guys were caught stealing some vino there in the cellar, and then uh, she thought she'll replace those two guys with one guy uh, that'll, that's willing to work really hard and not steal any vino. And um, I took that job and eventually sort of became her assistant, uh, and one year became two, and yeah, that was that was wonderful. So I, sorry about the noise, so that's just a tractor passing here on the, the farm in Elgin. Um, yeah, I worked there for two years and then eventually made up my mind and saved up some money to go and study. So I studied law at Stellenbosch. But I carried on with this relationship with the with the wine industry. You know, every, every holiday, every weekend when I needed some work, I did promotional work for wineries uh, in liquor stores over weekends. And I went to wine necks on behalf of some wineries to work behind the stands. And uh, and I worked uh, during the holidays at wineries like Simonsach and Wippenberg and so forth. So carried on. You know, I was studying law, but I was probably learning more about wine in Stellenbosch. Eventually took a bit of a sabbatical before doing my LLB and uh, went to work as a uh, sales and marketing uh, person at uh, Wippenberg Winery and, and ended up doing that for four years. And then just continue doing LLB uh, through through UNISA, through the post. Um, and then I took up a position with an, an importer of Wippenberg's wine in the UK, Anthony Byrne Fine Wines. And that's when things really sort of accelerated for me because this importer was obviously selling fine wine. He's an Irishman selling wine in London and around the UK. And he was selling everything from first growth and Grand Cru Burgundy to new world wines from all over the place. So um I had to shape up quite quickly. Uh, you would know this really well. Us South Africans just working wine here that haven't traveled uh, don't have a, a good knowledge of international wines. So it was a it was a steep learning curve quite quickly, just having to get a, a basic 101 on the wines of the world. 
Um, and then I eventually started working for a, a fine wine retailer called Jeroboam's. And that was magnificent. I mean, you if you know the wine culture in London, there's trade tastings galore happening all the time. There's people visiting you. There's, there's so much opportunity to learn. So that was a great experience. And the, and the great advantage of working for Jeroboam's is the staff discount. You basically get the wines at cost. Uh, so we were just drinking something different and something interesting off the shelf every every night. And then at the time, I just sort of thought it would be a good idea to qualify, to certify myself as a sommelier, even though I didn't really have any restaurant background, to just qualify, get a qualification as a sommelier, because I knew the industry in South Africa is not very developed in that respect. So that might be a way to separate myself a little bit. What year was this, Sigo? Um, 2008. Okay. 2008. 2008. Yep. And I was working Jeroboam's. 2009, I started on the Quartermaster Sommeliers program in, in the UK. Um, and very, like, uh, should we say, over ambitiously or maybe ignorantly, I went to do the exam. My tasting at the time was sharp, razor sharp. So the, the tasting exam, as you know, for certified, isn't that hard. So the the tasting, um, I passed quite comfortably. And the theory, you know, you just learn, you, you, you learn the book. And you, you, so that was fine. But I failed dismally at the service because, you know, I completely underestimated service, as I think a lot of people do in wine industry. What, you open the bottle and you pour a glass with someone. But um, they gave me another chance. They said, listen, you have to improve on service. You obviously have to do all three elements, uh, modules again when you come back. But uh, they allowed me to come back after then. Uh, what I did is I, I uh, what do you call it, moon, moonlighting? Is that the right <laughs> yeah, term? Uh, so, so, because the the retailer job was uh, conveniently a day job, so at, at night I um I went to because I made some friends with Somalia, so they allowed me uh, for no pay to just uh, sort of work work with them at quite a few restaurants. I uh, did uh, Notting Hill Brasserie, and I was at Diop Bachus and. Uh, a few stints at Ledbury and so forth. So just to to get the run of it, and yeah, then went back and uh, and got the qualification just before coming back to SA uh, into a position of uh, sommelier at this at Steenberg Hotel. This I started in 2010. Great experience there, and from there I uh, I started consulting. So Gabby Graham was the GM there, and she was really instrumental and, uh, and a good guide for me to make me realize that I could probably do my services to them and to some other places without really impacting them negatively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's how, because I don't think I'm an entrepreneur really necessarily by uh, by nature, but that that really uh, gave me the confidence and the, and the setup to to go out on my own and I haven't looked back that's since 2000 and late 2010 uh, I think no 2011 started going on my own and that's also around the time that we formed Sasa uh, so I think I'll, I'll I'll pause there I mean subsequently there's 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 quite a bit that's happened but that's all been part of my of my business and what I what I do in wine now let's chat about Sasa um, there's a couple of things I want to talk to you about there was a recent Strauss uh, wine auction um, with some unbelievable results which we'll get to uh but maybe chat to let's chat about sasa which is the uh, south african sommeliers association or is it south i never i never i can never remember whether it's the south african sommeliers association or the sommeliers association uh, of south africa i always get it wrong no, it's, the, it's the first <laughs> yeah it's the okay. first one it <laughs> matter that much but yeah we decided on the first one day yeah. So you uh, were part of the founding 
members uh, of the of Sasa. Was that 2011, 2010, I think it was, somewhere there? We, we started the conversation in 2010, and uh, I, yeah, I can't take the credit for the very first and in very initial conversations. Uh, that was with uh, Naftali. He started this um, initiative in 2010. He started attracting to guys like York Futzner and to some wine producers and so forth, but not really much came of it. And then at some point in around late 2010, we, uh, I suppose, sort of a critical mass of the sommeliers working in the country started realizing, well, there is momentum here. Now there's interest from the producers, et cetera. Let's get, let's get involved. And then the, the, the founding members then at the time was Neil Grant, Jörg Fritzner, Ken Schiermeier, Mia Martinson, uh, Josephine Gutentoft, uh, myself, um, Francis Kuhner, who was at the Saxon, and Miguel Chan. So, so the, eight of, the eight of us okay. started uh, then sort of officially registered it as an NPO and so forth in 2011. And what was the, the purpose of it initially? So what we recognized initially, I mean, we, I don't think we would have ever foreseen all of these uh, tasks that we ended up uh, doing, but that was what the what became apparent the industry required and, and needed of an organization such as Sasha. But the, the reason we set it up was to just have a, a platform to network. Uh, so I, I remember stating in our mandate, it's uh, it's a platform for networking for Somalias working in South Africa, but also for international uh, Somalias visiting South Africa. Because as you would know, around that time was also really the time for South African wine taking some momentum internationally. You know, it became really sexy. So people started visiting here and we would find out post-event that this MS or this uh, Super Som has just visited South Africa and was shown around by a winemaker or by a Woza representative. And then we've lost that opportunity to engage with him or her. So uh, that was really the motivation of setting it up initially. It was a sharing platform for tasting and, and, and ideas. But it quite soon afterwards uh, got more educational. Yeah, okay. And was it also to define help uh, South Africa define the term sommelier and put some some actual definition on uh, on what that is and what it isn't, or was it a yeah? Good point, Davy. That's uh, that's probably um, maybe even more primary importance. What we the, what was behind the, the motivation of setting it up was actually awareness. Uh, I think awareness of the profession um, because it's such a young profession, really, in South Africa. I mean, there are there are smellers going back to the to the 1990s at some of the sort of key establishments in, in South Africa, but they were so few and far in between that there wasn't an awareness. Of, you know, I remember at the time that we set Salsa up, there were quite a few winemakers still that didn't know uh, what a sommelier is really and, and what he or she is meant to perform and the roles that they would do in a, in a restaurant. So it was really awareness and also maybe to try and get rid of the informal nature of the profession the gung-ho sort of, well, yeah, I've, uh, I've done the Cape Wine Academy um, South African wine course, so I'm a sommelier, or, uh, or I've spent a um, uh, holiday working in the tasting room of a wine farm and therefore I'm now a sommelier, or whatever it might be. I think there's been quite a lot of in, informal uh, sort of not 
official qualifications. And I mean, I suppose that's not necessarily that damaging, except for the fact that, you know, when you when you've worked really hard for this qualification and when you when you are aware of what you need to be able to do, then it is a little bit insulting for the for those members or for the for the yeah, for those serious members of the profession. So we just wanted to maybe formalize it a little bit. So it was create creating awareness, uh, formalizing the profession and setting up a networking platform. Okay. And what, obviously from very humble beginnings, what were the what were the struggles that you found in South Africa in the marketplace or in the in the industry, in the wine industry, in the restaurant industry uh, initially? What was the the hardest thing to get across? So I think what what has to be said is that we've had fantastic support. I mean, we probably wouldn't have formed Sasa if we didn't have a, a booming wine industry here or at least wouldn't have been able to do it so successfully. So we've had great support from the wine industry, from uh, not all producers, but plenty of producers. Uh, you know, I could, I could call many of them up, but plenty of producers helped us substantially in the beginning. And then organizations such as Woza was instrumental with assisting us to set up. We had good support from the industry. What we didn't have good support from was, the, so when I say industry, I mean wine industry, where we didn't really get the support we needed was from the hospitality industry. And I don't think that's because maybe of any menace or any uh, necessarily uh, unwillingness. It's, it's firstly, you know, I think these organizations or these, uh, these businesses sell so close to the wind that they didn't necessarily have extra funding to now send their wine stewards to get further qualifications, or there hasn't really been a culture of competition and excellence for, for these roles because you basically have a supply-driven wine program. So the suppliers training uh, the, the wine stewards because they just need to know the products that's on their portfolio. Um, so I think that was probably our biggest uh, obstacle to a real sense of growth because our SASA can, and it's, it remains a challenge today. I'm, uh, as you know, no longer chairperson or on the board, but I know this as a fact. SASA's challenges have been then and still is now to really get uh, a, a big active membership base of working Somalias. Uh, and that was the challenge then, and, and that's the challenge now. And I think. The reason being, even though we scratched our heads on end, uh, trying to think of how to make the organization sexy, attractive, or necessary for potential members, the key thing is that it's, it's not really necessary because it's not affecting their growth professionally. That apathy maybe has been, has been our, our biggest uh, challenge for uh, in the early years and still is now. Yeah, I mean, I was I was obviously your vice chair when you were chairman. Um, obviously, we we uh, we had a lot of these discussions during that time. Yeah, I always thought that it was the fact that the market didn't really need it. There was no um, there was no uh, demand from the market for a skilled sommelier class in the restaurants, and it, by and large, I mean, obviously, there's exceptions to that. In terms of if you're sort of brushing the whole industry, uh, hospitality industry with the same brush, there was that apathy of, well, we don't really need that person because, as you said, all they need to do is just know the producers on our wine list because it is a such a domestically focused industry in that, that 
98 to 99 percent of the wine lists are going to be made exclusively of uh, South African wines. But there isn't really a need to know, you know, the, the AVAs in Washington uh, or you know the different GIs in Australia or the different Provincia crew in uh, in Von Romany. Um, so that that level of, of of knowledge wasn't really required in terms of the actual business on the on the on the on the floor on, on the on the restaurant floor. Yeah. But I, I think we both. Or all of us uh, at some point realised that there was this sort of gap in the middle. There was a vacuum of of where South African sommeliers should be, and they weren't there yet. So they didn't really need to to reach the heights of of the sort of the internationally certified sommeliers, but they needed to improve drastically. As and as you said initially, when you were talking about your own certification, focus on service. Because there's no excuse yeah. for not being absolutely 100% and schmick on service. That's the one thing you don't actually need to uh, have knowledge of. It's really just training and repetition. So I think if, uh, I mean, there's quite a few successes that Salsa has achieved in the South African industry and um, hopefully will achieve much more because there's, there's so much more to do. But I think one significant thing is that um, we certainly created the the awareness that uh, uh, Somalia is, is meant to be able to perform certain service tasks uh, with a with a measure of uh, with, a, with a measure of professionality uh, within a certain time limit, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that was helped on by all of the competitions that we've done uh, by and and by basic. I mean, it's really basic stuff. Eh? One has to realize that. Um, it, it was building from a from a fairly low base. So so basic things like ha- having an actual Somalia doing the the um, the training, having having a qualified, experienced some doing the, the actual teaching and training to others of how how to perform service tasks, because that was something that was just entirely brushed over. So what what Sasa realized quite early on is that we don't need to create another academy to teach theory. We've got some wonderful theory academies in South Africa that, that, that does that already. So we basically just incorporate those courses and, and, and use them as uh, required levels of knowledge, basically, that you need to have as a song. Because you, you would know this, the Somalia is always learning. You need to try and know all beverage categories, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a continuous learning thing. Um, but what we started making available is us teaching the, the service parts. Um, and that that hasn't been that wasn't uh, previously available. You would you would have just the winemaker or the or the sales rep or whoever come into a restaurant and, and show the guys how to open a bottle of wine. And, and obviously everybody's showing it in a different way and and saying this is uh, my conviction of how you must be doing it. Where there are international standards that sort of guided by uh, the international organisations. Just something, Davey, that I that I'd like to mention. Um, thinking about the challenges and thinking about the early and, and recurring challenges. When we had a, a rootstock session, uh, some listeners would recall the, the rootstock sessions initially started by Mike Radcliffe and then continued uh, by Bainland Magazine. Um, we had a session in 2018 where the whole of the SARS board, you were unfortunately not able to make it, but we were all sitting um, and sort of answering questions. And it became so heated it was wonderful it was really it was really well attended and 
the interesting thing for me, one of the takeaways from that discussion, because it was mostly producers and mining industry there, and the, the takeaway point was everybody thinks that someone else is responsible or some other part of the industry is responsible for improving restaurant standards. In the, so a wine producer would say, no, but restaurants need to be better at uh, training their staff and at having wine programs where they aging their wines and buying the wines and keeping it and so forth. And then the restaurants would say, no, but the wineries should be uh, aging the wine and then making it available to us. And the, the wineries should sponsor bursaries and, and train our staff, etc. And then some would say, no, but it's organizations like Salsa and so forth. And then a lot would say, no, but it's actually, it boils down to the clientele, the level of clientele, the restaurant goer, the patron, has to have a higher expectation and higher standards for service because if that's not there, then why there would be no motivation for a restaurant to strive for excellence because the patron's very happy with what he or she is getting. So all of these uh, dynamics exist, but the simple answer to the question is it's uh, um, all of them together that would, that would lift standards and would, would make it better. And I think, you know, Sasta certainly hasn't fixed that, but it has made a blip and it has made a wave in terms of the rising tide uh, theory. Just uh, having a little bit, because when you have a few sommeliers doing really well, being really excellent at some establishments, others see that and they go, oh, this is actually one part where we fall short. Our chef is magnificent, but we don't really have this great front of house program. So um, I think that's been that's been a success, but it, it, it's there's so much more to do. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that that, that rising tide. I think that's where the uh, the competitions made a, a big impact, and it took a few years for that to sort of filter into the industry. But I think it has, as you say, there's a, still a long way to go. But I think the fact that 10, 12 people come to fight out the best sommelier of uh, South Africa or the best young sommelier of South Africa title that means that there's nine people who don't win it but they've been training just as hard as the as the eventual winner so and then mm. and then two years later there's nine more people and so on and so forth and over the course of four five six years that's 30 people and that's going to make a difference in 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 a relatively small by uh, in terms of population industry yeah so another thing that Sasa was i mean i think the timing of the founding of the organization was quite quite crucial as well because of what i said earlier the momentum that the industry was enjoying and we started becoming uh, an international concern. But Sasa also became a partner and a tool, a useful tool for the rest of the industry. I'm thinking about something like the Woza International, uh, the Woza Somalia Cup. Hmm. I mean, there's no chance, and, and Woza would certainly uh, endorse what I'm saying now, there's no chance they would have been able to do that competition without Sasa. Uh, they, from the get-go, from 2010, which was the first year, it was uh, coincided with the Soccer World Cup. They involved um, the, the sort of the members of Sasa to organize and help setting the, the tasks for the international, so the papers and the tasks and so forth. And um, So I just quickly explain really, what that was. It quickly explain yeah, so what the, the World Cup was. Yeah, so that was uh, Sue Birch's idea and I, th- I thought it was really brilliant. And the reason I'm re- reminded of that now is what you're saying, what the competitions do. It's not only the winner that benefits, it's everybody that's training. And the, uh, the genius behind the Woza World Cup is that they had the heats. Is that the right way to say it? The, yeah. the runs in each of the, the Woza member countries. So 
you get a, a, a winner from each of the countries uh, coming to South Africa to then uh, spend a week or two in the Cape Winelands and exploring. And obviously those guys all leave as ambassadors, et cetera, et cetera. And there's all the PR out of that. But what, what people um, didn't notice or didn't necessarily talk about enough is all of those heats in the respective countries, they obviously do competitions on South African wines. So the nature of the Wazo World Cup was there was the, you could never compete as a South African Somalia because that would be unfair. It's about Wazo's mandate is to increase awareness of South African wines internationally because it's an, it's an export arm of South African wine. All of these countries would have their own competitions and all of the Somalias in those countries are learning about South African wines so that they can try and be the candidate that, that travels to Stellenbosch for a great, or to the Cape for a, for a you know, great uh, event. So all of them learned more about SA wines, and that's obviously increasing awareness in a, in a very effective way. And then the competition happened in South Africa. So it's never really been uh, uh, something that's now recognized like the ASI uh, Best Malay of the World sort of level of competitions. It, is a, it was a South African PR exercise, but it was great standards for... For Somalias, to give you an idea, previous winner, I think the last winner of the Wazo Somalia World Cup was Mark Olmert. And Mark is the current ASI Best Somalia of the world. So we certainly didn't have um, amateurs coming here to compete. It was was full of very serious individuals. Yeah, I also think of old uh, Christopher Bates. That's another success story. I recently visited uh, Master Bates, as he's affectionately known, (laughs) in uh, in his winery and restaurant in the the Finger Lakes. And... um, this guy, I mean, he's more knowledgeable on South African wines than he is on American wines. Uh, and he's he's now, he wasn't at the time when he won. He was the first winner in 2010. Uh, he's subsequently become an MS. He has uh, candidate master sommeliers coming up to him uh, to learn tasting. Uh, you, you know how the sommelier programs work. You're always uh, helping another one and guiding someone. So he's got guys coming up to him and he's forever talking about South African wines and presenting masterclasses of South African wines to Somalias in the U.S. This wouldn't have happened if uh, Christopher wasn't the candidate of the U.S. traveling out for the, for the Somalia World Cup. It's just as simple as that. I think it's had, it's had great waves of, of effect in the, for South African wines. While you were chairman of SASA, we connected with ASI, which is the, uh, the global association um, that links all of the sommelier, the national um, sommelier associations. And you are a, a very active proponent of that or a supporter of, of doing that. Why was that such an important task? Why do you think that was such an important thing to do for South Africa? I think, David, I mean, there's, there are so many interesting philosophies that one can take here. And I think we should come back to an education thing, you know, what you said earlier about uh, some needing to at least be able to tell you the Grand Cruz of, uh, of, of Burgundy or, or of the Cote Nui or of uh, Chablis. I, I think there's a lot of people in South Africa that would argue, no, a sommelier doesn't, doesn't need to be able to do that. If, you, if you're working in a South African restaurant, it's proudly South African with SA wines, uh, you just need to be able to tell the story of, uh, of, of Stellenbosch. And I want to park this idea um, because it, it certainly is something that I think we should chat about if there's a little bit of time in terms of uh, maybe having a distinction between having a Cape Somalia and having an internationally qualified sum. But what I, to answer your question, what I started realizing, and I, it's not only me, it's uh, all of us on the board, was that we need the, 
we need to be able to compete internationally. We need the international recognition for the courses that we're creating, et cetera, et cetera, to really get the awareness and so forth going and the, and the support. I think we would have probably just been, uh, you know, um, looking like just a bunch of guys uh, missioning around. And maybe that's what we set out to do initially in 2011, as I said, to just have a bit of a, a social um, networking organization. But we quite quickly, the industry showed us that they need us to be more. The industry required us to to start answering some of these questions around uh, around wine programs and wine service in, in hospitality in South Africa. And for that, I think we needed the international recognition and the international relevance. And the ASI is the organization for that. So I think it's been a, a great thing for for South Africa to join the ASI. It must be mentioned here that early in 2019, the ASI uh, um, Competition Planning Committee all came out uh, in January last year, came out to South Africa, as you know. And I mean, among them were embarrassments of riches of uh, previous best sommelier of the world winners. Like I think five of them, hmm. uh, plus some key committee members of the ASI. Now, this, these are basically the, the tone givers and the leaders in the, in the sommelier profession worldwide. I mean we wouldn't have dreamt of, of meeting these guys and, and having them in South Africa. And they, and here they all came together and we showed them around and we had interactive sessions. Um, that's, you spoke about that in a previous podcast with Andreas. Yeah. Um, yeah. But this is, uh, these, these opportunities came because South Africa joined the ASI and we, I think we made quite an impression and an impact because uh, firstly, you know, the, one of the key things for the ASI to do over is to reinvent itself and to not look like an old-fashioned European organization. And one way to do that is to grow into countries where they don't have any basis yet because they they did, they are traditionally European. Um, so Africa is obviously very attractive for that. But you can't just go and say, okay, you know, let's let's get a bunch of guys together and get, uh, get Africa going. I mean, you know, the challenges, if there's challenges in South Africa, then they, they lead you more in, in other neighboring countries. But... There are now, you know, three African countries and we're talking to quite a few other uh, interested parties in other African countries to try and get uh, legitimate associations going in their countries. Because once we have quite a few uh, associations in African countries, we can form our own chapter. We can have our own regional competitions because at the moment, I mean, Africa previously has been part of Asia, then was part of the Americas, now it's part of Europe just because of the time zone. But, you know, we're our own continent. We need to have our own best sommelier of Africa. And then that's, those guys also go to the internet, to the, to the world champs. But in, in our first year of competing, I'm trying to remember when it was, was it 2016, I think, when uh, Gareth Freire went to Mendoza and I went with him. Gareth went through to the semifinals and ended up uh, ending 15th. Uh, in the world, and this is uh, competing with the best sommeliers of the world, 65 countries, and uh, we became we came 15th uh, in our first attempt, uh, the first time that South Africa attended one of these things. So um, I think we made quite an impression, and you know the ASI wanted to embrace us to try and grow an African footprint. So it was very that it's certainly been a good decision. I mean, if you consider the annual membership fee, it's not, it's not that much. Now the ASI are recognizing our membership. They're recognizing our qualifications. So that's maybe the other key thing that we haven't mentioned with regards to setting up when we, 
started talking in 2010, uh, Somalians like ourselves had to go um, abroad to go and get a, a recognized uh, some qualification. Now, the Cape Wine Academy would contest that, but only the previous leadership of the Cape Wine Academy would contest that because the current leadership is in complete agreement with me. The Cape Somalia they had available in those years, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a serious Somalia qualification because well, of what was, I said earlier. They, it was recognized within South Africa, but it wasn't recognized anywhere else. So it's not really yeah. that useful as a certification. Yeah, and because they didn't really know what they were doing with regards to the the, the practical, the service training. Yeah. Because they weren't uh, Somalias doing that training. So, I mean, we we insisted on that quite hard and fought that quite hard, and it had a great result where it is at the moment. And there's some really progressive work being done uh, that I can't take any credit for, but um, collaboration between the current uh, SASA leadership and with the Cape Wine Academy and so forth. And that's what I... Wanna, I want to keep on wanting to float back to education because that's where it's all at. Mm. Uh, you know, currently SASA provides three levels of certification in South Africa. There's the there's the junior sommelier, and then there's the SASA certified sommelier, and then there's the ASI diploma, which, uh, as you know, I mean, you helped me a year or two in, in also making that available um, in in South Africa. So those three levels, and you could probably put, uh, if, if we include the quartermaster, sommeliers, the CMS, now also starting to make waves and looking to come out to South Africa, that's at the level of the SASA uh, certified some. So at the junior sommelier level, there's uh, you have to have a decent uh, international knowledge. Uh, you have to be able to properly, you know, decant a, a bottle of red wine, open a bottle of bubbly um, correctly, etc. So it's a good basic, uh, if you if you look at it in an international context, uh, would be like for a commi sommelier or a good wine steward at, at, at a serious wine establishment. Uh, that's the level that we that we certify there. And then the, the SASA sommelier is an international sommelier qualification. So that's on the level of quartermaster's Etc. It's um and it's quite hard, but it it would qualify you to be able to go and work in a restaurant anywhere in the world. Uh, and then, as you know, the ASI diplomas. Then the, the through our membership with ASI, um, we give we allow that that certification here. But I think where gap has been left is lower down because you uh, the listeners would realize from what I'm saying if our level one is already something that that is an international uh, sort of level of wine steward then what about the guys just needing a badge on their on their uh, jackets and saying you know i'm the guy doing the wine service at this wine tasting room or at this bar or at this uh, informal restaurant or bistro and i think there's a great opportunity to certify cape sommeliers that don't need to be able to tell you the grand cruise of uh, chablis uh, maybe just uh, at a level where they know chablis or chardonnay and that's sufficient just so that when someone comes into the restaurant and says, I uh, prefer Chablis, that they sort of know what he or she means. But basically specialists on South African wine. And that's where I think the Cape Wine Academy can play a great role. I mean, you could do modules on Yimlin Yim Arda and on the Swartland and on Stellenbosch and, you, uh, and on South African brandy and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's just leisure. So there's um, there's great opportunities there and it, it looks like there's some momentum it's something that we've been talking about a long time it looks like there's some momentum in that direction because if you look at some international countries 
I've spoken with the um, with board members of the Austrian uh, Somalia organization recently, and as you know, Austria produce wines of their own. Uh, they have a very successful program where they have Austrian Somalias that they don't they they don't try and uh, promote as international locations. They Austrian wine experts, mm. um, and they get front of house training. And they qualify as uh, as people able to make recommendations on Austrian wines in Austrian restaurants, okay. and you know I think there's a there's a nice opportunity with with that. But those are the three levels currently available, and that's that sounds very simple in saying it in one minute over a podcast. That has been a mountain of work. Anybody that's ever <laughs> been in education needs to realize how much work goes into setting up a syllabus for anything in education. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's, uh, you know, we, I've, I've spoke about it when we started about the apathy and there unfortunately remains, I mean, we should have had way more candidates coming and sitting through these courses, but let's also recognize um, work that has been done. There's been some incredible people coming in and out of the SASA board over the years that's done so much work in setting up that uh, qualification. So, yeah, I mean, one, one should look at the successes as well, right? Eh? Um, and and, in the, and being a member on the board is a uh, is an unpaid position as well. We have to remember. So everyone was doing that in their own time, which is mm. extraordinary. Which 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 is a good thing and a bad thing. It was a good thing that everyone's generous with their time. It was a bad thing that uh, when we were chair and vice chair, that if uh, if people didn't do what they were um, put their hand up to do, then there was no recourse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that, and we just have that, to sit there. <laughs> You know, in time, as one loses your idealism around life a little bit, you realize that um, anything, even if it's an NPO or a charity, anything needs to be run like a business, right? And you need you need money for that. So, I mean, the the, the basic obstacle for Sasa remains to this day needing money. Uh, if you look at um, organ- successful, uh, very successful organizations internationally, they have a hell of a lot of active members, and then therefore there's interests from sponsors. Yes, because you're talking to you're talking to all of this membership base. Uh, so uh, you know, <laughs> I remember when um, when the Japanese uh, for the for the best Somalia of Asia, I think last year or the year before, when the Japanese Somalia Association invited all of the countries, there was a stipend paid, like pocket money, for for all the visiting countries, not only the candidates but also. The media, the press, and the and the presidents um, of the organisations to have some pocket money to spend in and around Tokyo, and uh, I'm like, oh my goodness, this uh, you know we we're struggling just to sort of um, I don't know print the exam papers or whatever. Like it's uh, so yeah, the key obstacle has been and remains with uh, with finances, but there's I think there's been all sorts of innovative ways for Sasa to to look at. Um, getting funding going. And once again, you know, the, the producers have with uh, uh, corporate memberships have also been carrying the, the organization quite, quite well. Um, but I can't comment for currently, I do know that they're not cash flush, but it's, uh, it, it will always, will always remain a challenge. And as you say, then, because there isn't a healthy bank balance, the, the executive members of the board aren't paid and therefore you can't really hold them to account yeah. for the work tasks yeah it is a challenge and obviously we're having this conversation the reason why we're having the conversation via uh, zoom is because of covid and that has decimated the 
hospitality industry. What's what's your take on sommeliership in South Africa moving forward? Sure. Maybe I haven't really given that proper thought. I think it looks like everything everything needs to adjust and and, and adapt. I mean, there there's been the interesting thing is even before COVID nineteen, there's been a lot of um, discussion and noise made around the Somalia profession being needing to adapt and being threatened a little bit already by technology. I mean, if you, uh, why do you need somebody table side to tell you about the slope and aspects of producers when you've got the internet right there? You know, if you, if you have the access to the information and, you know, these, these things are getting more clever by the day, the, the, the apps or the, you know, the wireless tablets or whatever that might be uh, sharing the information with you, you really just need somebody to serve it for you then. So um, there, I, I think it's a, it's a profession that will need a lot of adapting. And that's, um, that's something that's happening internationally anyway, already. But at the moment it's, it's, it's brutal survival in, in the South African context. It's really, you know, I'm just hoping that all of the guys stick around and remain in the profession because you know, um, part of part of what I said earlier with the problem is that you know the finances doesn't only be an issue for for SaaS. So finances are an issue for restaurants as well, and that's why they don't pay necessarily their their uh, sommeliers or their wine stewards a large amount of money. If those guys aren't being paid now, it's not like they're giving up a very high salary if they if they're jumping professions. Mm. Uh, if they get a, a good opportunity in a different profession, because lots of these guys are very smart and very adaptable, then they probably would jump ship because they like, uh, you know, we, we weren't doing that well anyway. So I think that's that's part of, that's going to be part of our challenge. But hopefully what emerges from this is uh, is a, an industry that's more aware of, you know, local produce, maybe more keen on, on growing serious wine, uh, wine programs, etc. I can only hope, you know, Something that that I'm very worried about at the moment, uh, Davy, is is we've done so much work, and when I say we, I mean the industry as a whole. We've done so much good work in uh, establishing a higher regard for South African fine wines and lifting the price point to where it needs to be. And I don't mean a blanket lift; I mean like just uh, getting the narrative going about how South African wines aren't. Uh, correctly positioned and uh, going down the value chain, uh, etc. And now with something like this, I just hear horror stories of uh, prices being dropped, uh, you know, because uh, suppliers need to be need to be moving the wine. Uh, that's going to be a hard thing for us to recover from because, as you know, things like this, it's like building a brand and, ba- and breaking a brand. It's a very, very long period to build and quickly to break. Um, that's the, those are more the things that I worry about. Um, I hope that when restaurants reopen, that, that all of the all of the staff that have been in training programs, etc., are still available to them, uh, and that that carries on. I think if uh, if there can be an initiative from the industry at large, is that we that we support education uh, because that's probably going to be sucking on a very small teat uh, in terms of priority list. But we can't lose the momentum that we have with uh, with education in uh, hospitality. Yeah, I think uh, I think sommeliers in South Africa have a little bit of an advantage, maybe in the rest of the world. And maybe I have too much of a uh, a narrow view here, um, being that I've been in South Africa for so long now. 
the, the, the amount of new producers in South Africa over the last five, ten years is incredible. The, um, the number of new labels, new brands that you're seeing, I think that Somalia still have that as long as they keep up to date with what's happening in the industry uh, and it does require effort and attention and discipline, I think there's going to be a need for them to, to help, whether they be uh, table side or or internet side uh, to help people take that journey um, through a wine list mm. because I mean as mm. soon as a platters guide is is released it's I mean it's out of date probably a month before it's it's published and it's not it's a fault I mean it's just the way it, it works I mean and it's giving four five star wines and raving about wines that are already released and sold out yeah. so that there is that sort of immediacy and dynamism in the industry that I think only at this point in technology um, development of technology that only a, a, a human can communicate at table side. Uh, so I'm, I'm actually quite, yeah. I'm actually quite positive for the future of sommeliers in South Africa. Obviously, given everything else being equal and you know dining coming back and all of that, all of that business. So I'm, I'm, I'm less uh, pessimistic about the the role of technology coming in and stealing sommelier jobs. Sure. Yeah, because of the just the the, the, the churn in the industry and the, and the and the and the the dynamic nature of it. It means that you can't keep up, even as someone collects the information and puts it into a, a database for the internet to use. Uh, it's already out of date, or um, you know, it's incorrect, or um, yeah. So it's, or it just doesn't reach that far. I mean, some people are only releasing sort of a hundred um, cases of a wine. I mean, you can't search for those uh, on the internet currently. Yeah, that's very true. There's there's quite a few very successful brands worldwide, but also specifically pertaining to Cape brands that have been have been built on on trade. Hey, that's been uh, successfully established in restaurants. I think there's yeah, for sure. You know, these producers these producers realise that if we make friends with uh, with sommeliers, they're going to be ambassadors and they're going to be telling our story to the patrons in in the best possible context, which is in a you know, romantic setting with great food, etc. So you're right. A, a piece of the technology can't do that. Can't uh, um, engage with what's the best uh, match with the food, etc. So they and 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 you know, sort of uh, talk the patient through that journey and so forth. The key problem, and that's another obstacle that that South Africa uh, very strongly faces. And I, I don't believe that this is unique to uh, SA. But a key obstacle is that if the person, uh, if the sommelier or whoever, the person table side making the recommendation, if he or she isn't the person making the choice on the wine card, then then that dynamic doesn't have the full function that it should have. And that's really, I don't think our restaurant, and this is something that Michael Frijon has, has spoken about at length in the articles that he's written. You know, if uh, the the restaurants need to be willing to hand over that decision making and control to the person who's making the sales on the floor, but I think they're skeptical to do because we have a little bit of a I don't know what to call it, but a bit of a patronage uh, culture in our supply chain where there's so much. Yeah, you know, I've, I've written I've written something down before in, a, in an article. I, I think I need to read it rather than try and remember it. But basically, I said as long as we hand out samples, lunches, and compliments rather than training, support, and constructive criticism, we won't advance as a as a collective industry. And uh, you know, I think if the if it's too attractive to be the person 
making the buying, but it's not attractive being the person uh, doing the service. And that person doing the service haven't tasted the wine <laughs> that, they, mm. that they're recommending or serving, uh, and it's not their choice. You know, that's, that I think is a key obstacle for, for that dynamic to yeah. really work. Yeah, it, and it is an interesting one because, I mean, I spoke, I spoke to um, Colleen Morris about this, and we touched on restaurants up in Johannesburg, the fact that a lot of restaurateurs are restaurateurs almost by default. They're not necessarily food and wine lovers. Um, and if they are uh, food lovers, they might not necessarily be wine lovers. And so they sort of see the wine list as a sort of a, a necessary evil or something to be delegated away. And whoever's got the biggest checkbook can uh, can take care of it for them. Yeah, sure. I mean, I I don't want to comment on that too much because it is a contentious matter, but I think everybody realises the evil of uh, of paid for listings. I think that's that's just something that, that we have to fight collectively. It's uh, it's never going to I mean if 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 you continue with a with a culture where you have a, a whole uh, row of restaurants in a in a street or in a shopping centre and they one might be Indian, one might be Chinese, one might be Italian, but they all have the same wines <laughs> because it's the same supplier and it's not cater- it's not catering for um, for the style of food. Mm. I mean, yeah, that's just uh, it's just unsavory. That's why then you, you people want to take their own wines along. Yes, uh, which you then pay corkage for. Uh, it's just yeah, <laughs> the whole thing doesn't work, does it? Mm, no. Yeah, Davey, another thing that I would would like to touch on that I th- that I feel quite passionate about is you know uh, the health of a sommelier profession is certainly not measured on a, on how well they do in competitions. I, I don't want uh, to create the impression that um, because we have been criticised for it before while I was chairperson of Sasa that uh, it's almost like a, a leader of a country. Um, just being concerned about the foreign policy and traveling all around the world and forgetting what's happening locally. So mm. uh, I didn't want to create the impression that, that we are all about just having strong candidates at competitions and they're not caring about what's happening here. But I, I do feel that the, that the, um, from what it can do with inspiring another generation of Somalias, et cetera, I feel the competitions have been incredibly powerful and we've, we've of course, not only always had the best Somalia of South Africa, we've had the best young Somalia of South Africa that was uh, sponsored by, and there was one uh, organized last year um, with the new board, sponsored by Murray and Shandom. Uh, we've had initiatives like the Gaganau Best Somalia, uh, sponsored by the, the food utensil brand Gaganau. So we've had lots of development competitions that's, um, that's very good in uh, showing where the standards are and where we're, uh, young people entering profession, the profession should aspire to be. But if we look at our performance that we mentioned earlier with uh, the World Championships in 2016, Gareth Riera came 15th out of, uh, I think, 67-odd countries. Uh, last year, um, in is it last year? Yeah, 2019, in uh, Antwerp, uh, Belgium, we had Joe Vessels as our candidate, based in Malay of South Africa. Uh, he came 25th out of a similar amount of countries, maybe even a little bit more of candidates. Um, so in the last two best Malay of the world competitions, we've done really well considering those are South Africa's first two times competing. Mm. Uh, that, that lets my mind wander onwards to 2022 
uh, you know, who will be, who will be South Africa's candidates. And I think that that makes for an interesting topic almost, or just a, a sort of a departing thought regarding Sasa to think about, because what, what would, of course, in an ideal world be fantastic and uh, would be um, someone coming through the ranks, working in restaurants in South Africa and competing and, and doing similarly well, because something that has to be said, and I was always open to that criticism uh, with those two candidates, both, I mean, they, they as South Africans can be and uh, grew up and started working here, but both of them, Gareth and Joe, um, were working in other countries and really refining their skills in uh, in Europe before they, they went competing. They probably wouldn't have done that well if they, or argumentatively, if they went from uh, a South African restaurant. And I mean, that's, that's part of our challenges here is access to wine and access to et cetera. But as we've grown as an organization with Sasa, there's so much more, and as an industry at large, there's so much more access to wine, access to membership, uh, mentorship, um, uh, you know, great uh, qualifications that one can get here. Uh, international Somalia is coming here. The, you know, obviously technology helps a lot. So I believe that it is possible, but is the, is the industry gearing up in that direction to uplift the developments and having having these sort of candidates ready towards 2022 uh, to go and compete. That's sort of almost, I don't have an answer. That's a question that, I, that I'd like to ask more than anything else. What do you think? In terms of where SAS is at now, right now or? I think where the industry at large is at. I mean, SASA is only an organization that, that, that works. I mean, as you know, there's there's plenty of wines, uh, wine service professionals that aren't SASA members. Mm. Um, so I don't think the state of SASA is the state of Somalia in the country. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it is a tool and a window. Uh, there's, it's sort of more of an industry at large thing. I mean, are we are we where we want to be when when you and I hand it over? And if we ask uh, other um, you know previous board members, are we where we want to be? Because that I think would be a sign of success if one has. Um, I think I think if we were if we were where we wanted to be, we were, that's a problem with goal setting. I think we wouldn't we we hadn't set our goals high enough is the problem there um, rather than a success. <laughs> you know, like, um, I think sometimes. The way forward for us or for the industry for the is not super clear, and it is a collection of very self-interested parties, which is the way you know these things normally work. Whereas I think the the sommelier component was always sort of strung or attached onto some other part of the industry, and I think what uh, if I can maybe immodestly put, um, put forward is that when during our time on the as the the chair and the vice chair, we created a little bit more of that. Uh, self-determined direction uh, for Sasa and for the sommelier profession. I take umbrage a bit, a little bit with your, uh, or with the um, accusation that Sasa was all about the competitions uh, and nothing about what was happening here. I mean, I've already sort of mentioned the fact that there is a, a rising tide of that. I mean, there is there is a real effect of putting putting these people uh, or them earning their spots to go compete at these very prestigious events is other sommeliers see it and, and want to be there. And so when the next year comes, yeah. I mean, they want to compete because of a number of different uh, reasons. It could be ego, they want they want that title, or it could be 
Um, they want to uh, uh, be more seen in a uh, professional light, i.e. they want to get a better job or they want to have more leverage with their current employer in terms of getting more money for what they're doing or, you know, like there's a, there's a number of different elements that those competitions bring to the, bring to the industry that, that wouldn't be there otherwise. And it is uh, an industry. There is a competition, a competitive nature to it. I mean, if, if you and I... Um, went for the same job, we would be competing with each other for that job. So we'd want to put our best foot forward and be as prepared as possible to, to take on that position and, and, and lay our case at the selection criteria, whatever that be, whether it be an interview or, or a competition. So, but that's exactly what, I, what I'd like to, I think that, that can be a bit of a, of a core theme of, uh, of, of this discussion is that competition in the uh, for the for the position and for the role is something that I am skeptical about, and that I that's that's really I mean you know me I'm I'm probably a little bit of a, of a foolish optimist, but it is something that I'm concerned about, and I feel that you know rather rather talk about solutions than problems. I feel that the solution is that the bar has to be collectively raised in South Africa to reward excellence. Um, I think restaurant patrons. Uh, must ex- expect better standards. Restaurant owners must be pressured to source only qualified personnel to, to, uh, to lead their service teams. Uh, those members of staff must be rewarded appropriately. Often, you know, large hotel groups should insist on qualified staff in their programs and assist their staff through the programs. Uh, rating councils can, you know, incorporate minimum qualifications as requirements for, for ratings. You know, you want to think about... Uh, competitions like Diners Club or Eat Out Awards or so forth. Yeah, I, I think all of these things need to work together to really look at... Yeah, it's competition though, is it? I mean, there's no... I mean, that's just sort of a, an award ceremony. There's no competition. Yeah, but, uh, yeah what I mean is the, the, the criteria of how it is awarded, uh, yeah. you know, is very, very often perhaps based on, you know, let's look at diners. And I, I mean, I think the current management of diners, we won't be insulting them. They, they realize these shortfallings and they've worked really hard to try and uh, overcome them. The, but if, you, if you're just going to be viewing a, a, a wine list that's been submitted, uh, entered in a, by post or email, but there's no one really actually checking whether that is the, the list that's implemented at the establishment and whether they have the correct glassware and whether there's a, a a trained person uh, doing the wine service and the whole to evaluate the whole wine program and not only look at the list. Uh, that's, for instance, you know, I, th- I think there should be uh, re- sort of criteria for the awards on these sort of competitions because at the moment, unfortunately, they they do, fortunately or unfortunately, they carry a lot of clout. Something like Eat Out uh, Service Award carries a lot of clout. Um, and I think there's an opportunity with these competitions to really just make the uh, the service criteria of having an actual uh, certified or qualified person working, just so that there's more uh, more competition and more striving for excellence for for getting no, you know, I mean, getting those. I'm with you on the goals. I mean, they're they're very good goals. But how do you how do how do you get to those? What's the plan to get to the goal? What's the what lays between us and the goal? Um, you'd have to say, well, the, the 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 dining public has to demand these things. I mean, otherwise they won't do it. I mean, they're not going to do it because because you or I say so because they don't want to spend any more money. And that's what it, I mean. 
essentially that's what it is. It's a cost-saving measure. They don't have to actually employ anybody, all of the um, the people submitting do all the work for them. Um, and then they distribute these lists and, and they're assessed. It is the, the lowest input possible to determine um, the best wine list or, uh, you know, gold or platinum wine list um, you would probably imagine. And I think you've, I think I agree you've, with you. I think you put the problem there when they said, you know, they, um, they, they still hold clout. That's the problem. Not enough people care about the actual interface rather than just what's on the list. No, that's why I'm saying I don't think I, or I'm not professing to have the, the solution necessarily, but I think if, as long as we sort of tiptoe around the problems, uh, or because this I, I do feel is fundamental, uh, you know, I'm using the, our candidacy for going into future international competitions as an example. Yes. Um, you know, I feel that we'll probably keep on um, fielding those candidates or, you know, I mean, that's unfortunately the solution that's very often arrived by is you make a political solution and you say, okay, we're not going to take players from uh, international, you know, who's not in the country. We're not going to allow them to compete. But then you're, you're weakening yourself because all the other countries are doing it. So yeah. the better way is rather make your yeah, rather make your candidates in your country stronger so that they are they're not scared of the internet, whether you're working in London or in Joburg should be the same. And the candidates working in Joburg are not as sharp, maybe, or uh, because they, they're not being driven as, as, as hard. They're not, the, the competition for the role isn't as strong and, and the strive to be excellent in, in the services isn't as strong. And maybe, maybe your point is, is true that it's fundamentally down to the expectation of the patron but I feel it's a collective exercise, and you're right. I mean, what's it going to help if I just say it? But as long as we ignore this issue, I think it does sit at the at the core of uh, improving the the whole Somalia profession in South Africa. When you start making a compromise because you're saying that the guys aren't getting the same opportunities here as they would abroad, that's where the problem coming. So we should rather invest the energy and the efforts into create the opportunities here. So that it is the same as anywhere else, rather than wasting that energy in, in the politics of it and, and saying, no, let's uh, let's adjust uh, the rules and regulations so that those aren't allowed to compete. You understand what I mean? I think rather build the opportunity than uh, trying to equal out the playing field. I, I think I understand what you're saying. You, yeah, it's, it seems incredible to me. I, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> inflexible in my, my brain power to, to work around it. Yeah, no, that's fine. I think we've, we've said, uh, I just wanted to get that point across. Um, so that's Sasa. When did you, it was the uh, start of last year, you, so it was a bit of a nine-year stint? Uh, you mean when did I step down? Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I stepped down, um, yeah, beginning of last year and handed over to Bay Goldfield, who's now the the um, the chairperson. Um, yeah, I think plus minus, but obviously I wasn't chair. Neil Grant was, uh, was chair for, for uh, most of the beginning term of, uh, of Salsa. So I think chairperson for about four years. I think I'm not. I'm I think 2015. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's my recollection. So, yeah. So I think, you know, my, um, my key thing with, you know, I've, I've attended quite a few of the, 
uh, ASI international events uh, like the AGMs and and the competitions, as you know, and and you see these uh, old cats uh, pitching up there from countries where they've been the chairman for 30 years or something. And there's just absolutely no vibrancy, no growth. I didn't want something like that to to be uh, present also in South Africa. Myself personally, I I don't work in a restaurant uh, at the moment. You know, I won't say that I that I won't again, but it's uh, I don't think I, I think that I've probably contributed um, the fresh and new ideas that I could could or could give to the organisation. So it's always been important for me that it remains. Uh, as diplomatic as possible, and that there's an opportunity for young people to come in and and drive their organisation. Yeah, so that's been important for me. So uh, since the beginning of last year, I've also, from a business point of view, started uh, with my business because what what I set out to do and what I'm doing now is quite different. I started out the concept that I that I set up with was to sort of try and find a cluster of clients. Uh, restaurants and hotels to be a consultant smellier for all of them uh, assisting in uh, in training the staff uh, setting up the wine list and the program and so forth uh, but for various reasons that we I think have touched on now in this chat that that proved to not be uh, you know that lucrative so I ended up um, getting involved in quite a few other things among them, for instance, the Niederberg auction. I started assisting the Lien Stein at the time with um, with uh, the selection process and the event itself around the Niederberg auction. Uh, and I don't know, a whole bunch of, uh, of other projects that I got involved in. And sort of around last year, uh, late 2018 and uh, beginning of last year, as I started a family, I started realizing I need to maybe knuckle down a little bit and focus on the projects that I have uh, a stake in, that I have ownership in, and let go of the of the smaller parts of uh, of the business where where I do a little bit and bobs here and there. Um, and these these things are now, and we're at the time, and are still now. The uh, firstly the events business that I co-own with my sister. Uh, those are the, are the fresh events that I, we, I bought that over from your Futsuna who started it, I think in 2010. Yeah, Constantia Fresh this year had the 11th edition at Baton for Wachten. So, um, uh, and we've, we've started a new one in Somerset West at Morgan's Day called uh, Somerset Fresh. So it's an events business to do fine food and wine uh, outdoor events. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, my joint venture that I formed beginning of last year with Wine Cellar and Strauss and Co. as uh, the Strauss and Co. Fine Wine Auctions. Um, this we started with three sales last year, and we've already had three very successful auctions this year because uh, luckily we already had the platform going to do online uh, online auctions, online sales. Yeah. Uh, it's the, the second part. And then I have a small stake in the Smellier Academy uh, with uh, John Vincent Reed on. So I did still do a little bit of teaching and training because that remains a passion also for me to be involved in education and the development of, uh, of Smelliers. Uh, but the the key thing at the moment with COVID keeping me busy certainly are the are the Strauss auctions. We we've changed our strategy from uh, last year uh, away from having large standalone sales 
to have themed auctions and plugging them into the, the Strauss general uh, um, arts and um, jewelry and furniture and decorative arts and so forth sells. So, um, and that's been really successful for us. Uh, so yeah, I wanted to chat to you about the uh, the auction that um, that came out last. What, what was it? Last week, last Thursday or Friday? What was the when was that on? What was it a week? Yeah, it was last weekend. It was on uh, on on Sunday last weekend. Uh, we had for the first time uh, a, a live sale, uh, but online. So it was streamed on a on an online platform, and mm. uh, we did this in with the partnership with or with the use of an international platform called invaluable.com. Uh, it's been going for quite a while. They, they allow all, a whole host of uh, auction houses all around the world to do their live sales um, on their platform. And it's, that's worked really well for us, but we, couldn't have, we wouldn't have been able to do that without having already been online with the Strauss sales. We started, Strauss have been selling uh, art uh, online, I think, uh, for over 18 months, um, but we already last year had a had an online sale. But since the the initiative was very young last year, we you know we were only gaining and starting to build momentum with the with the auctions we started doing this year, and it's proved to be popular to have a smaller selection of wine to have more competitive bidding with the with the smaller selection and having the selection in theme so it's more focused and specialized. Uh, you know the whole um, the whole philosophy and the and the purpose and the intention of setting up this uh, platform. So I brought the parties together. You know I didn't see uh, the maybe the potential or the future in the Niederberg auction to be realised or achieved. What I thought could be possible with a South African fine wine auction. Um, so I started having discussions with uh, with Roland, and I was lucky enough to be introduced to uh, Strauss and Co's uh, CEO Frank Kilborn, who's very passionate about wine. Um, and the the whole reasoning is that we that I feel that there's a a, a great need to set up a secondary uh, or to formalise the secondary marketplace for South African wines. Um, you know, I feel that if we don't take our wines seriously enough. Yeah, then we probably won't uh, be able to drive this this whole initiative of getting South Africa to getting South African wines recognised as a as the fine wine sector internationally. And one way of building that is, I mean, if you look at what what shows quality in in wine is probably for me, um, if the wine shows a real sense of place and if the wine can age and um, uh, for us, there isn't really a culture of aging and keeping our wines that much uh, in in the Cape um, or with South African wines. Yeah, and I so we felt uh, to sort of elevate South African wines to a collectible and investable class. Uh, the, the best partner would be the, the most successful art auctioneer. Uh, it was great to have Strauss come on board. So that's the, the 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 real motivation behind it is to have a to establish a secondary market. So the, it's not only producers selling their wine uh, on the platform. So it's not just another outlet for producers to sell wine. Private collectors can buy and sell on uh, uh, on this uh, platform, 
as they would with their art and with their furniture. So um, that's been really successful for us with, uh, with regards to supply. Um, so we don't need to go and ask producers for wines, uh, even though producers do submit wines for the sales. We, we get quite a bit from private collectors, from private sellers. And how do you determine um, how the wines have been stored if they've been from a private uh, seller? Yeah, so we've obviously been very careful with that, uh, what, what's been happening, because we go out to, to look at the conditions and to validate sellers, and uh, we, we uh, are on the side of caution there, definitely. So most of the wines have would have been stored with professional storage, notably wine seller, obviously, so wine seller's clients, uh, but also wines that have been stored in the Berkele Vinatec, for instance, or uh, with other uh, importers or professional sellers, we, we would validate those. And what's happened since last year is there's sort of a, a, a bunch of um, sellers that we've now started accrediting that we know the condition of the of the seller and this and um, the storage just is good. So then we accept lots from that. But when a new private collector approaches us and he says that they've been keeping it at their houses then we need to get out there to look at the conditions and also open a few bottles and uh, look at the wines uh, which is obviously takes quite a bit of time and effort so so we the the system is when somebody is interested to sell some wines we've had some very interesting uh, um, approaches or offers of uh, of wines and what people think should be a collector's item um, but obviously, you can see when there's a serious uh, collector just by means of the list they send you, what they have. And if that seems, you know, there's there's some treasure tre- troves out there. Hey? I mean, there's people uh, sitting on some wonderful uh, heritage of, uh, of, of Cape wine. So, yeah, then we would, if it's justified, then um, we ask for some details in terms of the provenance, where they got the wines from how it's been kept, uh, sent some pictures, bottles, et cetera. And when those all look good, then we will go and inspect and uh, and have a look at a few of the wines. Mm. Um, so, yeah, the provenance is, is super important for us, uh, but mostly up to this stage because it's still a young uh, initiative and we don't really have that much manpower to now be driving around the country and uh, checking out sellers. We've mostly just been taking... Um, uh, supply offers from uh, um, sort of pre-authorized or accredited um, wine storage uh, facilities, for instance, wine cellar. Okay. And the most recent uh, auction was pretty extraordinary uh, in terms of the results that came through. So every lot was sold. Uh, and I'm just looking at the, at the, the results here versus the estimates. And virtually every lot exceeded its estimates up to sort of two, three, four times the amount. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I mean, we, we've also, we're learning as we're going with this initiative. Eh? I mean, it's uh, Roland and I are the, the, let's call it the wine experts involved in this initiative. Um, so we continuously discuss what we're doing with regards to selection and uh, estimates and prices and so forth. And, and themes and how we divide those. And, uh, you know, I think we can legitimately say that we know, we know South African fine wine, but what we, what we don't know well is the dynamics of auctioneering. Mm -hmm. And and luckily we have a a very experienced uh, auction house thing that guides us through that process, but they don't know wine. 
So you know what what we what this partnership continuously is doing is uh, learning and adjusting and growing. And one thing that we that Roland and I didn't quite realize the dynamics of of is you know how to really set the estimates because we were setting estimate prices. Uh, on sort of international standards of what we think the wine should be able to achieve on an auction platform. And we've realized this year that we should probably adjust those estimates downwards to, you know, also make them seem more attractive to the potential buyer. Uh, so I won't say that we were unrealistically low with our estimates, but we were more conservative than we've been in the past. So that's one of the reasons that it has exceeded the estimate. But there are some wonderful uh, dynamics in this last sale, uh, Davey, that I have to admit that we're all still a little bit gobsmacked by. Mm. Uh, you know, white glove sell, as they call it, when they sell all of the lots, is um, that's something that's quite unique for an auction house. I mean, the, the, the Strauss team are very excited about that result. It's not something that they get every day. In fact, I think they've only had a couple of uh, white glove sales to have a, a whole category sell 100%. Um, you know, if we compare to where we were when we started last year, I think basically what it is is we've just uh, um, built uh, a wider audience base of buyers. So I think there was much more competitive bidding um, on this catalog for for the sell. Also, it was a Bordeaux sell, so it really is. I think Bordeaux, it's also shown us that. Uh, what we suspected, but what remains true is Bordeaux remains uh, the most attractive category. Um, we've sold some, I mean, it was a wonderful collection of wines hey? and it's a, it's a smaller selection. So it's not like other auctions where you might have 400 lots and it gets a little bit boring of, uh, of wines. It was only a hundred lots of really curated top South African stuff with some, uh, with some French wines thrown in. And I think the, the main reason for the, for the uh, results above estimates is probably just the comp competition that there were, was with the bidding. Um, and it's mostly private buyers, or it's it's all of them private buyers. It's not people that buy with the view to resell, because as you know, if you do, when you do that and you want to still make a profit and a margin on that, then that that looks unlikely and becomes really expensive. But these are just folks that really want to have those the wines. The wines are also not available in the market anymore, so they they truly rare and scarce. So if you if you're really keen on the wine and you've uh, you know, you're looking at the other categories and there's art pieces by Irma Stern and Pernier, et cetera, into the millions. If you're then quite keen on some of these wines and they're a couple of thousands of rands, then I suppose they they don't seem that expensive. But we are we are wary of, um, we certainly don't want to set, as I mentioned earlier, part of the motivation of the initiative is to um, formalize the, the, the secondary market of South African wines. And, and that needs to be, a sober exercise and it has to be realistic and uh, you know see where the market is with uh, with the wines i've always felt that um if you because i've had a lot of people approaching me while i've with my involvement with the niederberg auction there um there were people approaching and saying you know i have a bottle of this and a bottle of that and what do you think it's worth and we of course never took any of those wines in for the niederberg auction because the the um, the rules for the Niederberg auction is that it was only from producers. Yeah. Uh, lots were only submitted from producers. But I at least tried my best to try and answer these um, inquiries coming in thick and fast, uh, trying to guide them and saying what, what I thought their wine collections are worth. And most, the standard copy-paste response usually was, I think, you know, you'd, you'd get better value out of the wine if you just drink it. 
because it might have been individual bottles of this and that. But when there were some serious wines, it was always hard for me to to get a real sense. Uh, is the 1982 Merlist Rubicon um, worth more than the 1983? And, and if so, how much more and so forth? And that's really a, a big part of what we're trying to do is to, to we're obviously capturing the data every time with these sales and uh, seeing where the, where the price sits and just hoping to arrive at a place where one tends to sort of uh, see what the older vintages of, of properly uh, stored South African wines are worth. Um, so we are wary of that being maybe looking like it's artificially uh, increased, but it's, you know, this was an auction where folks were bidding in the middle of the day um, from their homes. So you're not sitting and smashing champagne and, uh, and, and getting buyer's remorse the next day. It was a very sober exercise. And it, I think it just shows you when there's lively bidding on, uh, on lots, but uh, what folks are willing to pay for wines that they're very keen on. We're, we're ecstatic about this, uh, mostly because of the success of the, of the platform as opposed to, I mean, we are happy, of course, but just the fact that the, that the platform works for us, that we know that we can do the live sales uh, streamed live. Um, how we also did it is that the lots were open for bidding the week uh, prior to the, to the sale. So there's an online bidding activity where people are, are getting an opportunity to place their bids and when they outbid, they get a notification that they outbid so then they can bid again and then those, uh, the, the winning bids get taken into the live sale. Yeah. Uh, so I think that also made for a nice level of activity because most of the lots were already sold uh, before they, they started the hammer on the first sale or on the first lot. Uh, so I think there's there's quite a few things that we that we're doing right, and then that we're hitting the straps with it with it now. A key component is a smaller amount of lots with really well curated. We're busy doing the uh, the next sale now, which is going to be a Cape Heritage theme. So it's um, Shannon and Pinotage and those two base blends, sort of uh, the heritage wines coming out of the Cape. Um, and it's important for us to be very selective in terms of what goes on and to keep it to small lots um, of really rare and collectible wines. How much of a factor do you think COVID and the lockdown and the current prohibition on moving wine and sales of wine had on the, on the, on the auction? Sure. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, from what I understand, I don't want to comment too much on something I'm not uh, qualified enough for an expert on. But yeah. from what I see is that there's uh, there's certainly um, an increase in online uh, activity with, with wine sales and with alcohol sales mm. altogether. But then interestingly, I, I read this morning, I have quite a few friends that's invested in, um, in non-alcoholic uh, beverage classes and categories and those also booming hey uh, i mean that's a, that's an industry that's doing really well at the moment so, um it's i think there's so many dynamics baby the the factors that i've commented on are, are the real key reasons uh i believe that we've that we've had a, a the success of what we've had last weekend that's the fact that we've had more than 500 registered bidders where if we compare that with uh, some of our sales last year we had uh, 10% of that, if that, you know, um, 
we we had way more bidders. We had lots of new buyers, and we had some international buyers, etc. So, I mean, that's just going to give you a much more lively and dynamic sell. I think the weakness of the rand is uh, allowing for people to invest in a physical asset class that they know is well curated and that they might be able to monetize again in the near future or if they don't drink it you know i think those uh, the, the art sale also did quite well so it just shows that there remains an appetite for uh you know for a high end um for these uh, categories of investment let me chat about your selection process for the wines because you've, you've mentioned that being um something that you think is quite important what what is the selection criteria is it a is it a a formalized list or is it just sort of you and you and Roland getting together and saying, oh, that's not quite good enough or this is definitely good enough, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, we've made a, a, a list already uh, before we even started the, the venture because we, we started talking about doing something like this and one of the first ac- actions we did because, uh, you know, a key component was whether we'll whether there will be supply for long term and then obviously one has to see if, if we're in agreement with what what are these fine wines that we're talking about? So one of the first thing we first things we did was uh, we drew up a list of what we believe are the, the blue chip uh, fine wine producers of uh, South Africa, the the you know the luxury brands, the the guys that are are making uh, wines that we believe are are both ageable and collectible. Um, and the interesting thing is when we did those. In isolation, the the lists are very much the same. The, where it becomes a little bit contentious are uh, would be around the peripheral, where there would be some producers where you go, "Ooh, it's, this guy is very close to in or out." Um, and then, I mean, we we continuously taste and we continuously reevaluate. It's not a fixed, uh, it's not a fixed list. But uh, I think the I mean the obvious ones when you when you go and ask uh, any wine critic or commentator, both local and international, you know, what are the, the, the best wines of South Africa? I mean, there's, there's mostly consensus around what these brands are. So we don't go and um, taste each and every wine. Uh, when, uh, when we know there's a great, a, a great wine being submitted, then we're happy to have the supply of that and then we'll, uh, then we'll stick it on. Okay. So it's more based uh, on, then, on, on reputation rather than anything else. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I would I would certainly agree with anybody saying that there are some uh, great wines out there in terms of content in the bottle that that that's not coming up on our uh, on our auction list. And then I would say, uh, unfortunately, that's just because they haven't built up the brand reputation. I mean, there's a there's a lot of producers in South Africa that don't do as well from a branding and marketing point of view as they do from a production point of view. It's, uh, it's unfortunately as simple as that. And um, uh, but as I say, it's a, it's an ongoing and a dynamic thing. When when those brands do start being noticed and being uh, picked up and recognised, and uh, then yeah, then then they, we will consider them. And likewise, so when some brands fall out of favour, then uh, it's about what what we believe will be attractive. Uh, it's not Ego's Ego and Roland's favourites on a on an auction list. It's. Uh, yeah. Well, the selection no, is wine to be. It's a capitalist venture, isn't it? I mean, you're, you're there to make money, obviously. One hundred percent. Yeah. So the it's the the wines listed are 
what we what we believe will sell and will be attractive and unfortunately that's a combination of quality in the bottle and a com and a brand provenance so yeah we certainly go reputation is is, is is key first and foremost yeah yeah it's interesting because i mean there's some brands that perhaps had a because i mean the, the youngest wine here is a 2015 that i can see i think from from what i can gather um and five years is an eternity in south african wine so a lot of the wines are from sort of the late 90s, early 2000s, and the, the wine industry was a very different place then. So wine reputations would have uh, are different now than they were at the time of production or at the time of release. How have you sort of married those two things? Are you sort of looking at the reputation now or the reputation of when the wine was released at that, at that point or a combination of those two things? I think mostly reputation now uh, because the... The auction happens now, and the, uh, yeah. So I mean, but I think there's very few of the um, uh, of the producers that that's listed that would have had a um, a wonderful reputation ten or twenty years ago, and has a has a bad reputation now. I'm thinking of a of a wine, for instance, like so a wine that we're always very keen on selling if we can find it is Cordoba Crescendo, and that's a wine that has no reputation now because it doesn't exist. It's a bit of a cult wine, uh, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's wonderful. And it's almost, it's, it's almost more highly regarded because it's not being produced anymore. Yes. Um, so something like that had a reputation then, and then it's almost just sort of increased posthumously um, or something like Fienboden similarly. So there, there are those, but I think the, the producers still in, in operation have probably just, uh, um, increased their or upped their reputation uh, from five or ten years ago to now. I think the the whole of the wine industry has, has basically um, lifted its 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 image. Don't you think? No, absolutely no. But I think that some have lifted um, higher than others. Um, I'm looking at something like sure. a Merle, for example, um, Cabernet Sauvignon. I mean, I don't think anyone's racing out to buy the current vintage of that. <laughs> yeah, well, if, you, if you're doing that, you can also buy the farm now. So, you know, it's, a, it's been probably the most interesting thing that I've done, uh, you know, and um, bearing in mind what we've just discussed with the workings that we've had with Sasa. But I think this is uh, just from a, a, you know, personal stimulation level, uh, the the most interesting thing I've been involved with in the in the wine industry because there's, you know, there's quite a few things to to bear in mind and to to marry because there's a lot of wines that I have a high personal regard for that you know that I'd love to to throw onto a sale like this, but then you know very often and vice versa, then we would sort of bring a bit of reason in one thing to the other and go, but do you think do you think people are going to buy? Uh, that wine, you know, is it, does it have the does it have the traction? Even though we know there's some there's a so with something like Petit for instance, you you brought up the example now. In the 90s, they made their wines quite elegant, sort of low alcohol, and the wines were a little bit more austere. Mm. Therefore, they've kept quite well. And I know this because I've been uh, tasting uh, every year for the past, I think I don't know, five four five years or so with Michael van Deventer at the uh, Bachelor Vinatech. And quite a few of these distilled brands, to be honest, uh, Jakob Stahl, Eight Cakes, Honor Bloom, 
uh, have some wonderful wines that have kept really, really well um, that I would buy and uh, age further and, and drink and so forth. But are they going to be really attractive and um, uh, you know on an on an auction platform? I think once the, when the uh, when this venture reaches more maturity, we can probably start uh, bringing in wines where we're saying, well, actually take our words for it. This is, this is wonderful. But at the moment, I think it's so fragile that we, as you say, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a capitalist venture. It's something that we, we're very cognizant of the fact that we need to put uh, wines on that'll, that'll create some hype and uh, competitive bidding. And do you think that these, um, these results, if they continue, they'll probably have a, uh, an effect on current release prices going forward, one would think? Yeah, I, I, I don't want to be, uh, you know, overconfident or, or vain. And I, I think at the moment the industry is probably just sort of having a, a curious eye with regards to what we're doing. I don't think we're going to be influencing uh, price decisions from producers just yet. I mean, it's um, but probably in in time, yes. You know, I mean, the the idea for us is is certainly because you know we've been receiving quite a bit of criticism. Uh, with regards to this venture in that we were trying to inflate the price of South African wines. Um, and, you know, as I said earlier, we can only put the lots forward and then see what the, what the market's willing, what the buyers are willing to do. But, for, you know, if, if you can isolate an intention, what we are trying to do is not necessarily increase the price, but to just formalize it more. Like I said earlier, to try, to try and establish what are certain vintages of our best wines really worth. Um, and in in that same breath or in that same vein, I, th- I think some wines are probably overpriced in the market. Yeah. So if, 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 if you can very, sort of... Sorry, it's a very small um, sample size and the lots were very small as well. So mm. there is a, a scarcity in supply in these things, um, whether that be... Uh, forced or just just the, the the situation. Yeah, yeah, but okay. I don't I don't um, mean only uh, overpriced in terms of uh, recent results from Strauss. I mean uh, some Cape wines because there would be some ambitious attempts. I mean, uh, there's uh, you would know there's a lot of um, business people that come into the wine industry and, and think, okay, well, uh, you know, clearly we can uh, have a, a heavy bottle with a fancy label and um, and then charge a high price for it because everybody keeps telling us that South African wine prices are too low. So, you know, let's, let's get a luxury brand out there um, and just establish a high price point. Uh, and I think what, I mean, supply and demand does that naturally. In time, you see, okay, that's not that simple. And those prices aren't achievable. So if you're asking whether I think that we will have an effect on price points, I don't think we'll have an effect on price points in that producers go, oh, well, uh, we see now that these that our wines were able to achieve a much higher price, so let's lift our prices. Unless they're obviously greatly undervalued, but then that'll show up in other platforms as well. But I think what what happens is if there's um, it's it's just the formalization of of of, of the marketplace, not the price points. So, you know, there's if wines are over ambitious and we put them up and they don't sell, but other wines are selling really well, and that's also a little bit of a wake up call not only for ourselves but also the brand owner. 
thank you very much, Higo. I appreciate your uh, your time and uh, and your generosity of uh, of knowledge. I hope you continue doing well, and uh, and I hope uh, everything you touch is success. Thanks, Davey. I, I doubt that, but I'll keep on trying. Nice chatting to you. Likewise. Cheers, man. Cheers, man.